Hey guys, how are we doing tonight? Good, good deal. You guys excited for Color War? Yeah, good. I see that some of y'all didn't get the memo. Some of y'all are not in white, so it's a problematic. I'm one of those, so it's okay though. But uh, yeah, so hope you guys have had a good day. Welcome to Surge, specifically welcome to week three of Summer with Simon. Um, my name's Justin. I'm one of the summer interns here this summer. Um, super excited and pumped to be with you. Uh, I'm going to be sharing the word with y'all. So if it's okay, I'd like to pray. Just calm my nerves and uh, ask God for some guidance here and then we can get started and jump in. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much, God, for just um, giving me an opportunity to share your goodness and your truth. Um, God, I just pray that you would calm the nerves in me, but also that you would just use me as a vessel tonight. Um, God, I pray that every heart and every mind would be focused on you and that your goodness and your, your glory would just be made so present and so visible um, throughout this scripture and throughout the message just the rest of the summer through color wars, um, through just playing basketball, even in the beginning. God, um, I just pray that it would all be for the glory of you. Um, in your wonderful name we pray, amen. Yeah, so last week, if you were here, Amy spoke on 1 Peter um, 1, 13 through 16, which talks a lot about this word holy. Let me see if I can figure out how to work this thing here. Okay, perfect. Um, and this is the verse that we went over this last week. And Peter um, is writing this, and he uses this word holy. He uses it actually four times in just three verses. If you did that in your grammar class, that would be probably frowned upon. But biblically speaking, Peter is really pointing out and trying to drive home that this word has significance, right? He's using that repetition to draw your mind back to it over and over again. So we actually define this word holy as to be set apart for a specific purpose, okay? So holy ultimately means set apart or separate. So sit on that for a second. Last week, at the end of her message, she left you guys with this question to chew on, to kind of ponder on, to reflect on. She asked, what would it look like to live a life that is holy and set apart? See, I hope that you guys have had some time to kind of reflect on that throughout this last week, because it kind of transfers over into this week. So diving into what we're talking about this week, I get the honor of telling you guys about chapter two. It's great. It's kind of like, I don't know, Amy said that last week she felt really convicted by her message. This week, I just feel like I've been like learning more and more and more about myself throughout it. So it's really great. Um, We're going to be mainly looking over the first 12 verses, one through 12, and we're going to break it down into a little bit smaller of chunks just because this chapter is so rich in encouragement and knowledge. I, I couldn't do it justice if we just went all at once. So we're going to start with the first three verses here. First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, so Peter is coming out the gate strong here. This first verse is kind of like a one-two punch right up, like real personal, right? Uh, And in this first verse, he's calling out these sins. And I I like to kind of think about how whenever Peter or Paul or whoever writes to a specific set of people, they're writing to it in a personal and cultural way, right? So if he was writing to us, uh, this might look a little bit different. The things that he's calling out that we need to kind of run away from would look different. So in your mind, just kind of think about like, what are those things that in our culture, Peter would be calling out here, right? So I'm sure at the time, these were like the big things in the body of believers he's writing to. So really what he's trying to say here in this first verse, though, is that we need to turn away from the things that we've kind of been into in our former life, in our unsaved life, our BC or before Christ days, right? 
So he's saying to be holy and set apart, we must turn from our old ways. Um, Turn from things like lying and gossiping, stealing and cheating, jealousy and slander. You see, just like if we are trying to keep our physical bodies healthy, we probably would eat like, you know, fruits, vegetables, meats. We probably wouldn't be eating Twinkies is what I'm saying, right? Like you want to like go to the positive things and avoid the negative things. Well, it's the same in our spiritual life, our spiritual well-being. It's important that we feed our spiritual selves good and pure things while also avoiding the negative things. Um, In order to live a life that is set apart, we need to flee and run from sin. Too many of us are living a lives of complacency with sin, and we can't be complacent when there's sin in our lives. Like Amy said last week, this is a war that we're fighting. It's important that each of us take up the sword and fight this. We flee against the enemy's wicked ways. See, we should have the mentality that we must flee from sin like our lives depend on it, because they do. Sin leads to death, the separation from fellowship with God. Peter hits on turning away from the negative things here in verse 1. You know, he's like, hey man, this is important. You got to turn away. You got to run. The things that don't nourish us. But then the question becomes, what does nourish us? Just a little fun fact. Peter is like kind of on top of it. He lets you know in the next verse, right? So in the second verse, it says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I tell you right now, Peter is not talking about milk from the store, uh, even though Hildebrand milk in the little glass bottle, the chocolate milk is absolutely amazing. He's not talking about that, okay? The milk is a lot better here. He's actually referencing the spiritual food that nourishes your soul. It causes growth and increases knowledge. It increases wisdom and it increases your desire for God. So taking a few minutes here to talk about this, I feel like it's important because it's like, this is how you grow in your relationship with God. This is how you grow in knowledge. So I came up with the three P's of pure spiritual milk here. It's kind of corny, I know. But first one here is promises. Promises through time and God's word. If we don't understand what God's truth is in scripture, discerning things from the Holy Spirit is like so much more difficult because we can't always trust what our mind is saying. We have to trust what scripture is saying, what truth is saying. So when we feel the Spirit speaking to us, we should fact check with what the scripture is saying. Because scripture keeps our lives on track. It allows us to pursue the right things. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Second point here is prayer. Prayer is our personal time, our fellowship, our relationship with God. Prayer is a time that we get to pour our hearts out to him. Like we are so blessed that we have a God that desires that and wants to listen to it. We get to go with him, with, to him with not only our praises, but also our struggles and our hurts. Prayer goes hand in hand with scripture because it's a time to ask God to reveal his will to you. And that's not always going to be from him just speaking directly to you. It's a time to go back and read the scripture and get that truth once again. And then third is people through community and vulnerability. It's not good for man to be alone. We should strive to have relationships in which we can be vulnerable in. I call these the 2% relationships. Um, So like we each have 98% of ourselves that we're willing to kind of share. It's like what's on the outside, right? It might be a little bit deeper than maybe what's on the outside, but that's like as far as we're willing to go. But you see, you should have some friends in your lives that you're willing to share everything with. That last 2%, the darkest, the hardest parts of your life that you're like holding onto for dear life. That's where the devil is living and thriving in this. See, we need friends because we need them to push us to eat and like drink of the pure spiritual milk. 
Sin is able to live and thrive in the dark. So when we keep it hidden, it's just, it's not doing us any favors. And while confessing to each other is scary and hard, and it requires guts, it also requires an understanding of God's love and forgiveness for you and his confidence in the truth of that, which is why scripture and prayer are before community, right? We have to have that understanding of truth and the knowledge of how he forgives us and he loves us in order to have that confidence to confess to each other. So these three points of the spiritually pure milk are so essential for our spiritual well-being. That's why Peter makes it a point to mention that we must long for these things like a baby longs for its mother's milk. See, we don't have to remind babies to eat. Like they kind of just start crying and they know when they need to eat. I find it personally kind of annoying at times, but it's okay. Um, see, when they, they need to eat, they let us know. And they're not just eating one big meal on Sundays and then expecting that to hold them over for the rest of the week. Like that's their nourishment, that one time. But you see, that's just what some of us are doing. Some of us come to church on Sundays. Maybe we come to youth group on Wednesdays and we expect that to last us the entire week. But that's not how it works. Babies drink of their milk every day throughout the day because they need that daily nourishment. See, others of us are eating spiritual junk food that isn't really actually going to nourish us. It's not going to help us grow, but it's like just kind of there. And others of us are just living lives of malnourishment, kind of going through the motions. See, Peter talks about how once you have tasted and seen how good the Lord is, you're going to crave him. You're going to desire him so much more because you know then that nothing else, I mean, literally nothing else is going to satisfy your hunger for that. It'll make you want to share with others because, man, it is so good. It's just like, here, look, I have this great thing. Let me give it to you. Let me, let me show you. In high school, I was a depressed kid. Um, I was anxious and suicidal. I didn't really feel like I had a lot of truly close friends. I definitely didn't have any of the 2% friends, like I shared. Um, so I really wasn't very vulnerable with anyone. Um, I didn't have anyone to push me and remind me that I needed to eat, that I was hungry. At the time, I was struggling with my gender identity, I was trying to figure out um, on my own kind of what truth was, what that looked like. And I was just going to church once a week. I wasn't really spending time with God anywhere outside of that. Um, I, you know, I was involved in the church, but it was like, go in, get my food and kind of walk out, right? And the world was so confusing to me at this time because I wasn't seeking truth. No one knew about these struggles because I just didn't want to look weird. I didn't want to be called crazy or laughed at. I just wanted to blend in. And that included Christian, with Christians at church and at school, um, at, in my family, you know. Um, that's kind of the life I was living is this fake life. It wasn't until college that I had a friend sit down with me and ask me who I really was. Uh, ask me um, how I had been doing, how my spirituality was. And it took me a little while to trust her. But see, once I did, I started to let her into these struggles that I've been having for years and years, right? And she pointed me to God directly. Like, it wasn't about, man, like, that's really hard. I don't know how to handle it. Like, we don't know how to handle things. But instead, she pointed me to God. And she's like, man, God loves you so much. And he loves your story. He wants to use you. He uses broke, broken and weak people all throughout the Bible. Like, why can't that be you? Why can't that be us? So I was reminded of the goodness of God in this moment. And so I started seeking out truth again. I started to pursue him, started reading my Bible more. I started spending daily time with him in prayer. And I finally tasted the goodness of God in that moment. 
And now all I want to do, I want to tell people, I want to tell you guys how good he is, how he can redeem even the darkest and hardest of hearts. So that's what Peter's talking about here in verse three. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's definitely a slide for that. Hold on. There we go. And it says, once we have tasted that the Lord is good, we know that nothing else will satisfy our hunger. Nothing else in this world is going to fill you up like God does. You can trust me on that. I've, I've, I've done it. You know, I, I have done the things that the world says is going to fill you up. It's going to give you life. It's going to give you, you know, joy and happiness. I've partied and I've drank. I've been there. I've done that. See, but the world promises to nourish you, but it actually just starves you. It's sometimes easy to start believing that the world is going to fill you up with joy. It's hard sometimes to step out and pursue something differently. And you are probably going to get some judgment, some slack whenever you do this. You're going to look different. When you are pursuing Christ, the, dev- the devil doesn't want you to feel comfortable. He doesn't want you to feel loved like you're accepted. Why would he want that? It's just like strengthening you, right? So he uses other people to ridicule and mock you. The world's going to try and choke you out and cancel you when they see that you are living a life that is holy, a life that is set apart and separate for a purpose. But you see, we have to be willing to step out. God doesn't want us to live a life of blending in. So throughout this process, it took me a while to, to get to the point where I can tell a room that I struggled with gender identity or that I struggled with X, Y, and Z. I was afraid of people making fun of me, not believing me. But then you have to realize that we have to start to build our confidence in God. Sadie Robertson refers to this as Godfidence. Godfidence is um, when your confidence is built solely on God and not on yourself. It's having confidence in God's love and forgiveness for you. Which brings us to verse 4 and 5, which says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, in verses four and five, Peter uses the phrase living stones to describe us. It's kind of an interesting metaphor when you really think about it. But uh, let's, let's examine that here for a second. See, before Christ, we are dead in our sins like stones. We're just thrown into a pile without a real purpose. We blend in with the rest of the gray, hard-hearted stones in the world. Looks probably something a little bit like this. Like if you look at this picture, there's not really a rock that like jumps out at you as like really special, right? But then after Christ enters into our lives, we are brought to life. We are chosen and set aside for a specific purpose, a purpose of building the kingdom. Might look something like this. And I want you to, to look at these real fast. They're not all symmetrical. They're not all square or rectangle or whatever you want to call it. Right? Each is unique. Each is bigger or smaller or like more pointy or whatever it is. Just take note on that. Verse 4 directly shows that as living stones, aka followers of Christ, we are going to be mocked. We're going to be rejected by man and by the world. But that is what living a life set apart comes with. It's about being willing to look different and it takes confidence in God, Godfidence, if you would. God would much rather us be broken and reliant on him 
rather than have an overinflated and falsely confident view of ourselves. It doesn't matter how other people see you. For me, I realize that it doesn't matter if other do- others don't like me because of my story or because I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. I'm standing up for truth. That's going to look different than others. But, but that doesn't matter because when the world rejects me or they reject you, it's essential that we remember that we, we are chosen and precious to God. We have a greater purpose than even we can imagine. And plus, like Amy said last week, this life is all temporary. The pain, the rejection, the confusion is all temporary because we are living for a greater hope. Verse 5 goes on to talk about this greater purpose that we have as living stones, as set-apart individuals. We are building the temple. We are building the body of Christ in the church one piece at a time. Each story, an individual so valuable and precious that it fits into the building perfectly. Remember I told you right here, each piece is small, but it creates the whole structure, right? No matter how the person's life has gone or what their story is, God sees it as so important that he gives that stone a specific spot. I just want to take a second and say that if, if you're in this room and you feel like you don't matter, like your story is too weird or too big or whatever it is to be used and to be loved by God, man, you're, you're lying to yourself. You're letting the devil just sink in on your heart. You are so loved and God loves your story. Let that sink in. Your story, whatever you've gone through in life, God loves that because he's created it. Romans 5.8 says that, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice how it doesn't say that since we no longer sin, Jesus died for us. In fact, in this song that we were singing just a few minutes ago, it said that Christ died for us while I was still sinning. It doesn't say that since we no longer sin, God God loves us. It says how God loves us even though we were still sinners. Just sit in the truth and the power of that. If you're struggling to believe that God doesn't desire your story or your life, or if you're struggling to believe that he does desire your story or your life, Please, please just reach out to someone, talk to someone, a leader, anybody. I've been there. I've felt that before. It's, it's not a fun place to be, and it is lonely. Anyways, back to Scripture here. Moving on to verse 6. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a so- in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So verse 6 is, like it says, a reference to Scripture. Uh, it's referencing Isaiah 28, 16 from the Old Testament. Um, so this is, it's calling it out, right? Like they're going to place a stone, Christ, in Zion, okay? And the ultimate and most precious stone that has been chosen to fulfill the ultimate purpose and mission, Jesus, he was the chosen cornerstone for the structure that we are being built upon now. The cornerstone is the block that builders place first, and all other blocks are built around and on top of this specific stone. It sets the pace for all other stones that are to be laid in the structure and it makes the foundation strong. Verse six is just reinforcing that Christ is the cornerstone that we as believers are built upon. For those of us who believe in Christ the cor- and the, in, in the cornerstone and build upon it, we are promised that we will not be put to shame even when the world cancels and shames you. 
See, but then Peter gives us this stark contrast to the situation in verse 7 and 8. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 7 is basically saying that those who build their lives around things that are not the one and only true cornerstone will, according to verse 8, stumble. They don't have the same promise that believers are given because they don't obey the word. They don't spend time in the truth. So it's so important to have a strong cornerstone and foundation. When we don't have Christ as our cornerstone, our houses and our lives will crumble and fall. A couple weeks ago, Ryan talked about dead ends and how there are things that we put our faith and trust in that eventually lead to a dead end. They eventually lead us astray and fail us. When we build our foundation on things of this world, we are bound to watch them crumble and fall for we have built our house on sand. Christ is the only cornerstone and firm foundation. He is the firm rock. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. I don't want to say that this verse doesn't mean that if you follow Jesus, like your life is going to be super easy, that it'll be perfect. But instead, it means that when you put your trust in Jesus, the firm foundation, it won't fail you. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard the wind and the storm is, it won't fail you. So this next verse, coming back to 1 Peter here, uh, this is where it gets kind of sick. Verse 9 and 10 in 1 Peter 2 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim, wait, this is wrong here, hold on, there we go, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Man, this verse just gets me fired up. Like, honestly, it does. And it's because Peter, to me, this is like, I try to like envision how they're writing this, right? Peter, to me, is writing this and he's like, hey, 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 if you're a believer, do you understand the weight that that carries? Do you understand that out of the millions of other rocks in this world, he chose you to be a part of his structure, a part of his foundation? He's selected you. He's made you living and given you purpose, made you a part of his holy nation so that you have a purpose now which is to spread his goodness because you've tasted how great he is. And he's given you this mission now to further his kingdom. See, Peter's reminding us that we were once dead and lost and now we are saved. We are declared the people of God. I think that Peter is also speaking to those of us who haven't found Christ in this though, who have not built our lives on Christ as the firm cornerstone and foundation. Because when you hear this, You should be given so much hope, fire in your heart. Like, okay, why would I not want to be a part of this? So to wrap things up here in the scripture, Peter ends with a couple closing thoughts here for his readers. 
Verses 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as surgeoners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As wanderers, Paul is calling us to action, to flee from our fleshly and sinful desires, so that we may be set apart and seen that way, so that we are a living, breathing example of the goodness of God and his power. So to conclude things here, I just want to reiterate some main points. We must flee from sin like our lives depend on it because they do. We can feed our spiritual lives with the three Ps, promises, prayers, and people. See, once we've tasted that the Lord is good, we know that nothing else will satisfy our hunger other than these three Ps. Before Christ, we are dead in our sin. And through him, we've been made into living stones built upon the only true cornerstone. We are saved and declared chosen, precious people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God, for choosing us, for looking at a pile of rocks, looking at broken and weak people, and and calling us out of that, calling us into life, giving us new hope and purpose in you, God. God, I just, I ask that over this room that you would give us the motivation and the desire to learn more about you, the desire to spend time with you. God, I just pray that each student in this room would hear you, would see your goodness, would taste of it. God, I just, I desire that so much for these kids, for these young men and women. God, thank you for sending your son to be the ultimate cornerstone, our firm foundation, God. In your wonderful name we pray, amen.